Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, there's, a, there's a lot I want to discuss today. Uh, talk about the, the uh, get, getting it right. How do we get it right? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm continually reminded of the fact that uh, there's so many ingredients and there's so many separate aspects to, um, to, to, to heavenly service that, uh, that it's, it's just so easy... To, um, to do everything right, the way Reb Shlomo would say it is, doing everything right and at the same time doing everything wrong. And so how is that? That seems sort of counterintuitive. How can you do everything right and then simultaneously be doing everything wrong? And if you think about it like you're, you're cooking a dish, just to give a very simple sort of like way of visualizing this, if you're cooking a dish and there's like a thousand ingredients or perhaps thousands of ingredients at your disposal. You might be using all the proper ingredients, but if you're not combining them with the proper, in the proper proportions, then you're, you're sort of making the recipe, and you're at the same time sort of absolutely not making the recipe. I'll tell you something from my, um, from my, uh, my own life. I discovered cooking at one point. Um, for a very brief period, <laughs> and uh, I was sort of inspired by this uh, this phrase. Actually, I think this came later, but this sort of like uh, this this puts it out. Um, some it was in this uh, bookshop. It was a very cool bookshop. It only had cookbooks. That's the only thing that it had, and um, they had these big uh, posters around the the bookshop with different great quotes from chefs. And one of them was talking about basically the ma- the magnificence of chicken breast, right? Because they said that it's like a, that what the canvas is to a painter, chicken breast is to a cook, because you can put anything on it, right? And I remember when I was cooking, I, I thought to myself, wow, you know, you can be such a gourmet, and you don't even have to go shopping, you just open up your refrigerator, and anything that's in your refrigerator, you know, you can just put it on the chicken, and it's like you can make recipes. And I remember realizing that this was actually completely incorrect, when I made grapefruit juice chicken, <laughs> which was mm. terrible. It was, it was sour and horrible. Now, I imagine if you just took like a tiny teaspoon or half a teaspoon of, of grapefruit juice, there's a way to actually make that work with chicken. But, but I just kind of just like poured it in and just thought, genius, you know, and it, was, it, it didn't work. So proportionality is, is one of the great secrets and, and how to combine it and how to make the proper combination for your personality. Now, w- let me just make sure that we're communicating. What I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is, let me just pick and choose from the mitzvahs that I like, and those are the ones that I'll do. That, that's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm assuming that we're trying to do everything. And yet, within doing everything, finding the right, the right balance. And also finding the right pace in which to take on various things. Because that can also thoroughly influence what your relationship becomes. One of the great tricks of the Yetzirah, of sort of the negative spiritual um, opposing force, is to actually disguise itself as a rabbi. And what this means is that sometimes the, the, the Yetzirah, this, this negative spiritual force, will actually encourage a person greatly in terms of taking on mitzvot, understanding that they're not ready for those particular ideas, understanding that the person will then drop those ideas and become depressed and throw away the entire thing. So one has to be on guard for, 
for, for this sort of like rush of enthusiasm that can also come from the wrong place. So in other words, everything has to be very methodically built because you're, you're building a great structure. You're building a magnificent mansion that's going to last forever, this world and the next. And so it has to be done with great forethought and great care um, and great methodicalness. So, so with this in mind, it's, it's just worth just, just taking just like a historical snapshot on what the Hasidic movement did and what it was exactly. You see, the Hasidic movement was basically a complete revolution in, in Torah, in the Jewish world. And yet, probably the greatest aspect of it was that it didn't change anything about the Torah. And, or put another way, it didn't add anything, and it was completely consistent with everything classic Judaism had been saying for thousands of years. So what did it do? Why was it revolutionary? It was revolutionary because it reprioritized a lot of the basics. In other words, it said, you know, basically Jewish life had come to this place where, where you, you were connected to God to the extent that you were sitting in a yeshiva in front of an open Gomorrah and learning. And to the extent, and that was like a very privileged few, and to the extent that you were trying to make a living and you were out chopping wood or carrying water or doing all the other aspects of, of daily light, which was the overwhelming majority of the Jewish people, somehow you were cut off and, and, and failed in terms of your relationship with God. So comes the Hasidic movement and says, wait a second, God is absolutely everywhere. God loves you to pieces. Wherever you are, you can connect with him. Know him in all your ways. Whatever you're doing, that's the conversation that you're having at that moment with God. It doesn't just have to be in front of an open book of Gomorrah or something like that. And then that just like caught the entire Jewish world on fire. It just changed everything overnight. But the brilliance, the genius of it is that it didn't undermine any of the principles of what Torah was. So it was just sort of like getting the recipe right. So now let's, let's sort of like go from the, the, the macro to the micro right now and just talk about ourselves and, 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 and making sure that our relationship and our um, priorities um, are, are, are in, the, in the right proportion. So here comes Parshas Ekev, and it, uh, it begins... I'll, I'll read to you the first Pesach in English, and then there's a, a few key Hebrew words that I want to discuss with you. It says, This shall be the reward when you hearken to these ordinances, when you listen, it's talking about hearing, um, and you shall observe and perform them. Hashem your God will safeguard you, the covenant, um, and the kindnesses that He swore to your forefathers. Alright, so, so all the rabbis uh, are, are zeroing in actually on the opening words. Vahayam Ekev. Um, and, and Ekev is actually means the heel. And the heel is actually really very interesting. And we're, we're going to talk about the, the spiritual implications of the heel. And then I just learned an incredible Torah from Reb Shlomo Karlovach in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe, which is going to take this back to the Garden of Eden. And we'll see it on that level as well. So, so anyway, let's start with the basics. So the heel of a person is, well, let's begin with the Rashi. So Rashi says that, that basically, what's this talking about? God is saying that if you observe the, his ordinances, the, 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 the mitzvahs of the Torah, there's going to be reward. Okay. 
But, but the language of it is, is a little bit peculiar. And Rashi zeroes in on it. And he says, you know what Akev is? Akev, since it's talking about the heel of a person, it's talking about the light mitzvahs that a person tramples on and steps on. So, so in other words, these are the things that a person sort of like in their own analysis says, you know what, these things aren't that important, I'm not going to do them. That's you know, just sort of like putting it out plainly in simple language. That, that, that's what it's talking about. Now, by the way, you should know there's this, a great truth about, about Jews, maybe, maybe humanity in general as well, but, but especially Jews. And if you think about your own life, I think that you'll, you'll, you'll resonate with this. Which is, that, which is that if you see someone who's doing one more mitzvah than you are, you say, oh, that guy's like a fanatic. And then if you see someone who's doing one less mitzvah than you are, that guy's like a heretic, right? So somehow, and there's a, there's a joke that is inescapably linked to that, which is also very, very famous, which is that um, they find this Jew who's been stranded on a desert island, just him, he's alone. And when they rescue him, they see that he's built two synagogues. And they ask him, why two? And he says, one I go to, one I wouldn't step foot in. <laughs> so, unfortunately, this is, this is sort of like, uh, we're sort of born with this tendency. And then we sort of have to evolve out of it and refine ourselves out of it, you know. But, nonetheless, I think for all of us, there are certain practices that all of us feel as though it's sort of like, you know what, I don't need to do that. That's too much. It's not for me. And these are the mitzvahs that we trample on and step on with our heel. Now, let's start to get into this sort of this, this, this psychology of, of our relationship with God now. You see, and sort of the, the, the spiritual aspect of it as well. You see, the heel, why are we stepping on it with our heel? Why is the Torah using the word heel? The heel is a very interesting part of the body because it's the least sensitive part of the body. It's the least sensitive part of the body. And if you think about it, God did us a great kindness by constructing us in such a way that the heel would be the least sensitive part. Because can you imagine that you're, you, imagine God makes us so that our heel is as sensitive as our exposed eyeball. Right? Can you imagine like walking on your eyeballs all day? Like... What, what would that be? It's like, honey, can you get me that, please? Can you get me the remote? Why don't you get it yourself? No, 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 please, you get it. You know, it's like, it would redefine laziness. You know, we wouldn't want to take a step, basically, okay? So God blesses us by making, just on a, again, the most simple level, our heel the most, the least sensitive part of our body. Now, in terms of the generations until Mashiach, until the Great Redemption, the last generation, since the heel is on the bottom, so, you know, if you think of a timeline chronologically, that would be the end. The last generation is known as Ikve de Mashiche, which means the heel of Mashiach. And that, again, has a lot of different um, repercussions. One of them is that the last generation is likened into the heel. And this is one of my favorite things. Um, I just... I've shared it with you before, but just in case you haven't heard it, it's, it's just so good. I'm trying to demonstrate here. If you, if, you imagine, if you imagine this to be a doorway, right? So in other words, a doorway is going from one room to another room, or if you will, one era into another era, right? So here's the doorway. And now look at the part of my body which is the last to leave. 
If you look, the heel is actually the very last place to leave one place before it goes into another place. So the end of days is referred to as the heel of time because that's the last part that gets transferred before it enters into the next epoch, if you will. Now, the sort of like paradoxically, perhaps, or maybe ironically, uh, the last generation is also the most spiritually insensitive, which in a way makes a lot of sense. Maybe we'll explain that in a moment. But in other words, if you think of like Adam Harishon, like the Adam and Chava, like the, the first people in the Garden of Eden as the head, meaning to say that they're the ones who are most spiritually aware because, you know, the world is, is sort of pure and, and free of, you know, any mistakes and, you know, God is speaking to them directly. And so, so there's a tremendous spiritual awareness. So if that's the head, the last generation is like the heel. Everything is mired in materialism and, and veils separating, you know, a, a greater awareness and competing ideologies and, and all of the rest. So the last generation is likened into the heel. Now, God always preserves free choice. So, so, so it makes sense that the generation which is about to be exposed to the greatest aspects of spirituality will have the greatest test and will be the most spiritually insensitive. So that, that's a way of preserving free choice. And yet, tremendous revelations are going on simultaneously. This is sort of like the great joke about science and the scientific revolution that's going on right now. In other words, there's all this God revelation going on around us in the most alarming, mind-blowing way, but it's all labeled under the category of science and not God. I mean, it's like... It's this trick, basically. It's this trick that God is playing in terms of our consciousness. In other words, when we... Okay, I just saw something that just made me so happy the other day. It was like on AOL or something like this. Do you know that bats pollinate flowers? I didn't know that. I thought that, you know, you've got, you've got bees... And bees are so busy and they're buzzing around and they're, you know, they're making honey and they're, you know, laying on flowers, pollinating them and all the rest. And that's so nice. Bats at nighttime flap around and pollinate flowers. While you're sleeping, bats are making fruit. You know, this is, this is amazing to me because it's like it just shows you just how intertwined all creation is and how these things that you think are you know, just the most unlikely sources of anything are actually being used for that very thing. So, in other words, what I'm trying to tell you is that science right now, I mean, I, I saw Rabbi Schatz put it this way, science is Kabbalah. Science is Kabbalah. In other words, in other words all these enormous revelations about the workings of, of, of nature, about the workings of creation, about all of the secrets are being revealed. God is revealing them to us the way he works, the way he runs things, his infinity. And yet, in order to preserve free choice among this heel of a generation, this, this insensitive generation, it's all categorized in heavy quotation marks as science. 
As though, if you believe in one God and understand that God fills the entire world, that there's anything other than God in any aspect of anything. So, so, so this is one of the tests of the last generation. So now let's, let's keep on going in terms of the heel. Because, because I want to talk about our relationship with God. And, and, um, and Rabbi Shlomo put it so beautifully. You see, what he, what he talked about, and he really personalized it, what he talked about in terms of the heel was that the heel is, is our lack of sensitivity in dealing with God. Not in terms of what we're doing or what we're not doing, but how we're doing it. You see, he gives, he gives a, a bunch of very beautiful examples. And he says, like, just very simply... Imagine you're walking down the street and you see like a poor man and you hand him $5, $10. It's a good, good amount, you know. Hand him $5, $10, right? But you don't smile and you don't say anything nice. So he says, where, where does it say in the Code of Jewish Law, in the Shulchan Aruch, that I have to do it b'simcha, that I have to give him the money and I have to be happy? It doesn't say anywhere that when I give the money that I have to be happy. That's, that, that's the tip of the iceberg. That's, that's, the, that's the beginning of, of, of understanding how things have to be done. And in terms of the way I started, in terms of making a recipe and there being thousands of ingredients and understanding how to prioritize them and how to proportion them and understanding the importance of certain things that no one necessarily dictates to I think that maybe all of us have experienced this in, at one time in our life or another, where one person says to another person, you know something? If I have to tell you, if I have to tell you, it's not worth saying. I want you to know, but I want you to know on your own. Have, can, have you ever heard that? Or at least you're, you're, you're aware of it, or maybe you've said it dozens of times. So. You know, just... If I have to tell you, in other words, so, so there's certain things, yeah, of course to be happy. You know, of, of course to be happy. Of, of course that's, that's the essence of it. Of course to do it with a, with a smile. You know, one of the most beautiful teachings I heard was that a person's face is actually part of the public domain. And that how you present yourself, whether you're smiling or on the other side, whether you're scowling, right, is actually very much other people's business. It's almost like if, you're, if your face is like, say, a billboard, right, along a public street, and, it's, and you're scowling, you're actually putting graffiti on something that more or less belongs to the community, you know, there's, a, there's like a, a famous story that's, um, that, that there's some people in a, a lifeboat. It's a life raft, right? And, you know, there's been some kind of shipwreck or whatever it is, and these people are on the boat. Thank God they're, you know, hopefully going to have their life saved. And one other person picks up a, a like a, uh, a, uh, a drill, like a hand drill, and starts making a hole in the boat under where he's sitting. And other people are saying, what are you doing? He says, 
It's my business. <laughs> so this is my seat. This is my business. And the other people were like, are you crazy? You know, this is, we're in this together. You know, so, so there's certain things. There's certain things that you just, you, you have to do. You have to do. And, and with, because they're, they're game changers. They change absolutely everything. Now, I want to get more into it. So, so just so we're all on the same page, so we understand what we're working with here right now. We're talking about how, how the, the heel that, 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 that Hashem is telling us that if you, if, you, if you serve me down to your heel, basically, if you serve me from head to toe, but with your heel, with this aspect which can be very spiritually insensitive. If you bring that level of sensitivity to the relationship with the little things, the things that you would normally step on with the little things, then that's going to have a transformative effect. That that's going to bring a revolution in, in, in consciousness which is actually going to bring about the end of days. Because, as we said, Ekev also stands for Ikve de Meshiche, which is also alluding to the end of time. So in other words, we're being given a key right now that if we sensitize our heel, the heel now is standing for, you have to kind of, we're juggling a few different concepts simultaneously. This word heel means spiritually, spiritual insensitivity, but it also means end of days and arrival of Mashiach. So in other words, if we bring sensitivity to our service, we will arrive at and bring the end of days. Do you see how those two things are working together? Um, so, because if you imagine a relationship, if you imagine a relationship, and it's a love relationship, and again, you know, I'm always saying this because it's, I think it's so central to, to our understanding. The, the relationship that we have with God has to be that love relationship. That the paradigm is from Song of Songs, from Shir Shirim, which is of lovers. Because you, you want to do. You want to do for the other. And the big things in a relationship, in a healthy relationship, the big things you're always going to do. Right? You're not going to call your wife and say, you know, honey, I'm sorry, I'm late for dinner because I'm with another woman. Right? Like the big things you're going to do. You're not going to do crazy things like that. But what about the little things? Right? The little things are often going to define the relationship. So, so in, a, in a love affair, those little things are so important. Now, now, I want to caution again something before we sort of take a trip to the Garden of Eden for a moment. I just want to, I want to, I want to suggest something and I also want to caution against it simultaneously. So, I mentioned that how one proceeds in, in terms of their heavenly avoda, what, what, what one takes on, when one takes it on, how they take it on, at what pace, all these things are, are very, very, very important. Now, I'm talking about the importance of the little things right now, but, but you know, the Yitzhahara, this opposing spiritual energy, always is trying to undermine us. So, I just want to warn you of one of its tricks. When I talk about the little things, and I want to go into the little things for just a little moment right now, but just with this big caveat to begin with. 
Don't become neurotic. That's the headline. <laughs> don't be neurotic. In other words, well, I didn't do this little thing. Now God's going to zap me. And I, I didn't do this little thing. And everything like that. That's not, that's not it. That's not it. Because God also, while a person has to have an aspect of what we call Yerushalayim, which is this awe of heaven and everything like that, and sort of like this sense of reverence, at the same time, though, your relationship with God can't be fear-based and riddled with fear. Right? Like, I'm going to get zapped at any moment. That's not, that's not it. So again, it's, you know, it's like, okay, cilantro, not ten handfuls of cilantro. You know, it's got to be in the right balance. This is why it's so important that everyone should have a Rebbe or a teacher or a guide. It's, it's essential. Because these are the things that you have to discuss with someone. Should I take on this? When should I take on this? At what pace should I take on this? A lot of times there are mitzvahs that are like very complex, like Shabbos and things like that. Many steps to it. Okay, how, my, how should I break down this mitzvah into different parts? And how should I proceed in doing it? Like all these things, a person should consult with someone who, who understands them and, and who can, and can put them on a right path. Okay. Now, having cautioned, I hope, against neurosis and a fear-based kind of like zap mentality, with that in mind, now let me say the following, which are some precious little things that a person can do that I think that can influence a relationship. One is, when you give charity, when you give tzedakah, you're supposed to give it with your right hand. Now, there will be a moment where you want to hand something to someone, and you'll see, well, it's in my left pocket. So you reached into your pocket with your left hand and you pulled it out. And then you go, oh, you know something? It's even sweeter and more precious to God if I give it with my right hand. You see, did you hear that little moment? That little moment is what I'm talking about. Oh, you know something? I can, eat, I can do it even sweeter and in a more delicious way if I do it like this. Okay, here's, that's how to do it. Here's not how to do it. Oh, I gave it with my left hand. God's angry at me right now because I blew it. Ah, it didn't even work. That's not it. Do you hear the contrast? Do you hear what the, 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 the level of sensitivity I'm trying to, to display right now? It's like, oh, it's in my left hand. And now I'm alone in a room. I just want to put it in a charity box, in a, in a, in a pushka. No one's even looking. Even better. No one's even looking. It's like, oh... Oh, let me do it with my right hand. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's an even more beautiful, precious way to do, to, to do the mitzvah. You see, it's coming from a place of love. And it's a little thing. And, 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 and the beauty of this, the beauty of this, one of the great aspects of this, is that no one is going to notice. <laughs> that, that's not an argument against it. That's the whole argument for it. Because that breeds Intimacy. Because it's private, and no one is looking, and no one is noticing. And then you've got a little secret between you and God, like the good kind of secrets, right? It's like, oh yeah, God, I did that, and oh yeah, just, I just did that because I love you, I just wanted to make it a little more special. You know, and then you've got that love thing going. You're kick-starting that. All right. So now, yeah. Why is it that we... Uh that we receive with our, our left and give with our right, right hand. All right, let me let me think about that. Let me think about that because I'm in the Garden of Eden right now, so I gotta <laughs> I can't 
I can't switch gears, but but uh, we'll, we'll go back to it. Godway. So, so now, so now listen to this. One of the curses that comes down in the Garden of Eden, and now this is I'm saying over an Ishbitzer Torah that I, I saw from Reb Shlomo, is the snake gets punished, and the snake is told the following thing: that human beings are going to cut off your head, right? Because that's, I guess, how you kill a snake. You, you cut off its head, I guess. Um, you're going to cut off its head, but it's going to bite you in the heel. That's interesting. It's going to bite you in the heel. We've been learning about heels. So how does that figure into the whole discussion that we've been saying up until now? So... So if I, under, if I understood correctly, and we've sort of set the table for this, this, is, this teaching actually has been informing what I've been saying up until now, but let's just hear it, the source of it and hear it you know, directly, is that this snake energy, which is like Yetzirah energy, that's sort of like negativity, this negativity is going to bite you in the heel. In other words, it's going to empower... This part of you that says, that doesn't matter. I don't care about that. That's not for me. That's how the snake is going to penetrate us. It's going to fill us with a level of spiritual indifference. And that indifference is going to spread to the rest of our relationship. And it's going to kind of be like, like a cancer, God forbid, on our relationship with God. And it will start with, no. You see, there's, there's, people think about God in a really strange way, I think. If you, if you believe in God at all, Right? It seems to me to only make sense to believe in a God who's all-powerful and all-knowing. Because if you're going to believe in a God who only knows a little bit, then what do you need that God for? Right? I would fire that God. (laughs) It's like, you know what? You're not a good enough God. Get out of here. You know? Back up your things. So, unless God is all-powerful, and of course... We Jews say he's absolutely all-powerful, knows everything, creates and recreates the world nanosecond to nanosecond. All of creation is creating and recreating. If you think of, you know, a, 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 uh, like a film strip, right? It's like each one is like a little picture, right? And then you run them together and it has the illusion of continuity and movement, right? But every single moment is an isolated moment in time. And then God recreates the world so quickly, it looks like there's this fluidity. Now, one of the great ideas, it's, just, it's, a, it's a side point, but it's just too good not to say, is we don't believe in what I saw Rabbi Moshe Shapiro refer to as, um, how did he call it? In, inherent creation, I think he called it. Or inherent reality. Meaning to say, 
that what most people think, just because they haven't thought about it or they haven't learned more deeply, what most people think is once something is created, it remains a creation until it dis- it's destroyed. In other words, it has an inherent reality to it once it's created. And it exists on its own until something comes and destroys it. But that's actually not the Jewish view. The Jewish view is that there's no inherent reality to anything. That all of existence, from moment to moment, is constantly being recreated. Which is, it's a very far out concept if you meditate on it. It's very, very far out. Um, and, but this is what we've believed for, for, for thousands of years. And in fact, to show you how central this belief is, if you look in the morning prayers, from the time that we say Baruch Hu, which is sort of like the official opening of prayers, till even before Shema, that's a very small parcel of real estate in the, in the, in the prayer book. And we're saying this every morning. We say this concept, Ose Ma Shis, that God is, is creating and recreating everything, Talmud always. We say this thought twice. I mean... We didn't even have to say it once. And the sages aren't anxious to repeat themselves. The fact that we say it twice, right at the opening of the prayer book, every single day, is quite, quite amazing. I mean, it's, it's really, the sages obviously really wanted to instill this consciousness in us. Now, one of the tremendous benefits of thinking this way, that the world is constantly being created and then recreated then recreated, is that you understand what the word breishis in the Torah means. Breishis, of course, is famously translated as in the beginning. It's the first word of the Torah. But breishis, I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, is actually means breishis, with beginnings. That God actually created the world out of the fabric of beginnings. So that every single moment then actually is a beginning. It's not like, think positive. You know, have a positive attitude, you know. It's, it's more than that. It's actually embedded within creation that every single moment is a new beginning. Literally. You know, just while we're on the subject, just, again, one of my favorite things is, I learned in math class, in high school or something, that a straight line is actually not a solid substance. That a straight line is actually composed of an infinite series of dots. Isolated dots. Which means, a lot of times, we say, I'm on a path. You know, I always think like, you know, I'm trying to lose some weight. So, it's like, there's the freezer. I'm walking toward the freezer. Well, I'm walking toward the freezer. It's over already. Right? Because I'm part of this straight line, which is a solid. But a straight line is not a solid. A straight line is composed of an infinite series of dots. Which means that at any moment, there's a, the previous dot is not connected to the next dot, which is not connected to the next dot, which was not connected to the previous dot. At any moment, I can swivel and turn and do whatever I want. So that's this idea of bereshis, with beginnings, right? That the world is constantly being created and recreated. So the snake bites us on the heel. And one of the things that the snake stands for is exile. And this exile mentality. And again, exile, as Reb Labela Eger puts it, is believing that tomorrow 
is going to be the same as today. Because today was like yesterday. I think tomorrow is going to be like today and tomorrow is going to be like yesterday. This is this is this this is the heel. This is this level of insensitivity. I heard a rabbi speak yesterday, Rabbi Alon from Hebron. You see, because reality is that anything can change at any moment. In fact, God tells us that the world itself is evolving toward perfection. Even if we don't see it, the world is evolving toward a greater spiritual consciousness. And that's actually reality. That's not sort of like our wish. That's actually where it's going. You know, I made up a song one time, and and the lyrics are, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know where I'm going, but the driver is good. Right? We're being driven to this place. There are all sorts of tests and complications and setbacks and all the rest. But but the driver is good. That's that's, that's actually where we're going. But what is reality? We, we, We get to define reality for ourselves. It's one of the amazing things. And one of the the hardest things. So this rabbi was speaking and he said he gave two examples which work really nicely together. He said he was sitting in a movie theater, an IMAX movie theater, you know, so that's a, a larger screen and I think often more frames per second and things like that. So it's a, a much more intense visual experience. And he said that he was watching a, it was of a roller coaster ride. And he said that the people in the audience were screaming and he thought to himself, how absurd. It's like there's, they're not in danger. They're just sitting in a chair in a room, and I could turn on the lights at any moment, and yet here they are in a, in a chair screaming. Right? Like, it's crazy. Then he told another story. Now, look, this story is so far out, okay? But let's just assume it's true. Right? I haven't checked it out. Let's, he told it as a true story. Let's assume that it's true. Just to hear the idea, okay? And that it's that there's no, well, maybe it was this, or maybe this is the reason why that happened. Let's just take the story in the simple way it's being told, okay? A person got locked into, like, one of these industrial-type freezers, right? In a some kind of food place, I guess. And he tried to get out, and he couldn't get out, and he realized... He's going to die because he's in a freezer and there's no one who's going to come and save him. And he picked up a, he had a pen and some paper, whatever it was, and he started chronicling his last moments. And they found him and he was dead. And the freezer wasn't plugged in. In other words, he thought I'm in a freezer, I'm going to freeze to death, and then he starts, what the mind can do, do you understand? He starts thinking, I'm freezing, I'm freezing, I can't get out, I'm freezing, and he worked himself into such a state where he died. Now what did he die from? Did he actually freeze to death? Did he induce a heart attack? I I don't know. But the point was that the thing wasn't actually plugged in. So, So in other words, 
In other words, what the mind can do, you're, you're sitting in a room, but you're screaming like on, you're on a roller coaster. That's not reality. You're locked in a freezer, but the, the freezer's not plugged in and you quote-unquote freeze to death. So what is reality? So, so we have a real blueprint of reality. You know, we say, we say that there's a tremendous, there's a tremendous structure. And it's like, I, I've been trying to think this way lately, and for me it's added a lot of clarity, and I just share it with you. <clears throat> Which is that if you look at the cosmos, kind of look at the universe, you know, from just the orbiting of planets and everything like that, which is, you know, they're like trillions of stars and planets and galaxies and everything like that. And miraculously, they're not constantly crashing into each other. Okay, we've got meteors and asteroids and things like this, but, but for the most part, like, the heavens are working, like, unbelievably well. You know why? Because the heavens don't have a Yetzirah. They don't have a negative inclination. They don't go, you know what, I think I'm going to orbit around Mars today. Don't tell God. I really hope he's not looking. I know I'm supposed to go around Venus. I'm thinking Mars. You know, like, it's like this debate does not happen among the galaxies and the stars and the planets. It doesn't. They just do it, and they do it so precisely, and they turn exactly right. You know, it's, it's really amazing. It's amazing. And then on the subatomic level, all these, you know, all these parts, exactly, exactly right. Exactly right. There's so much order and structure. Human beings, it's a disaster, right? Among us, it's a disaster. It's completely mysterious. Completely mysterious and, and random seeming, right? But we're like a tiny piece. We're a tiny piece. If you take a few steps back, you realize there's magnificent structure. And, and that's true in our own lives as well. We have a blueprint. This is, the way, this is what the Torah is. We have a blueprint to become in harmony. That's what it is. You know, I was kind of just thinking this week. You see, if I look at the world, I say, look, I'm so small. Look at the world. The world is so big. I'm so small. I'm beyond small, right? There's no words for how small I am compared to the world. But then, compare the world, the physical universe, to God. You say, well, wait a second. God is infinite. So, I don't care how big something is, if it's finite, compared to something infinite, that finite thing is tiny. Right? Because anything compared to something infinite is by definition tiny. So, the world itself is tiny compared to God. And then I thought to myself, but God puts a piece of his infinity into me, which is my soul. Which means I'm actually much larger than the entire universe. I'm larger than the world. Right? Let's go through those steps again. A person says, I'm small compared to the world, which makes sense. On a physical level, right? Then you say, but the world is like nothing compared to God. And then when you say, but God puts a piece of himself into me, that's my soul. Well, then all of a sudden I've got an aspect of infinity to me and I'm much bigger than the world. So, 
So in terms of taking ourselves and each other seriously, take yourself seriously. You're, you know, you know, when you, when you just think on a business level, like IPOs, right? Like when, when, when companies start, you say, well, wait a second, you know, maybe I can get Bill Gates or Steve Jobs to like buy my company or to invest in my product or to buy my movie or whatever it is, right? And then, and then if a big person like puts a, an investment in your project, then you go, you feel beyond validated, you know, because this guy's like one of the kingpins of the world, right? Now, what about if the kingpin of the world, what about if God invests a piece of himself in you? He actually says, okay, I'm putting part of me in you. Like, what could be, what could be greater than that? There's nothing greater than that. If you just want to imagine just who you are exactly, and what opportunity you have in this world during this little window, I just want to end with this thought, which is, which is, you know, I bought a lottery ticket. By the way, there's, um, if you buy lottery tickets, I don't buy them that often, but if you, if you buy lottery tickets, you're only supposed to buy one. Because if you buy more than one, it shows a lack of belief in God. Because God doesn't need two. He's like, oh yeah, thanks, you know, I forgot that first one that you bought. You only need one. And if you buy two, that's actually a lack of faith. So, so if you're into lottery tickets, just buy one. Okay. So, and also I do the quick pick, because I know for sure, if I start picking birthdays and I win, I'm going to think I'm a genius. So it's like, just give me the quick pick. You, you give me the numbers and just give me one, and that's what it is. So, so anyway. Um, so imagine you buy a lottery ticket, right? And, you know, as... So often happens, with me anyway, I don't know if this is true for you, you put it in your wallet or whatever it is and you forget about it. It happens. Or you you put it in a drawer, whatever it is. You don't remember. So here's my question. If you buy a lottery ticket and it's the winning lottery ticket, but you don't, you have it, but you put it in a drawer somewhere. And let's say, I'm going to make up a number, it's a $30 million jackpot. Right, but you not only not only do you not you forgotten all about the ticket. Are you rich or are you not rich? That's my question. So I'll argue both sides for you. Okay, you say well you are rich because you have the ticket and you have access to these funds, and so objectively speaking, technically speaking, you're rich. Right? I hear that. I would argue actually that you're not rich. Because even though you have it, you don't have access to it, and it's not informing your life in any way. So you see, you have a soul. We all have souls. We all have this winning lottery ticket. We all do. And then the question is, are we aware of what it is we're in possession of? Or not? And how are we using it? You know, my mom used to do something which I, I didn't understand when I was a kid, but when I got older, I, I appreciated more. Which was, she would take like a, someone's business card and use it as like a toothpick. <laughs> and then she'd use the corner, she, you know, just, you know, but, you know, now that, you know, like seeds and tomatoes, I got a couple of gaps in my teeth where they just get in there and I cannot get it out with my tongue, you know, and it drives me crazy, you know. And it's sort of like, if I can get like a little something and kind of put it in there and get it out, it's like relief, you know? 
So sometimes, can you imagine you're using your winning lottery ticket, which you haven't checked, but you're using it to get a tomato seed out between your teeth, right? So some people, they are using the ticket. <laughs> they are, we are using our soul. But how are we using our soul? How are we using it? You know? You know, I, I thought just to give you one more example. You know, we have so many mitzvahs. We have... We have the we have sukkahs sitting in a sukkah is so awesome, you know, shaking the lulav and esrig, and of course there's tefillin and talis and shabbos and charity and just so many awesome things, you know. Now, now imagine someone you have a Ferrari, right, or a Lamborghini, you know, like one of these like tricked out incredible cars, you know, and and you've got like the Toyota Camry user's manual. Right? So, and you're using the Toyota Camry user's manual to figure out how to work your Lamborghini. So, probably you're going to figure out, okay, the key goes in the ignition, and there's the gas, there's the brakes. The basics you're going to get. The basics you're going to get. But there's so many extra aspects to this machine that you're never going to figure out. Because you haven't got the real user's guide to it. So the Torah is the user's guide to our soul. It's opening up all these different mitzvahs or different parts of our soul that we get to open up and like really get to fly down and to, and to really access. But we have, to, we, have to, we have to know what it is that we have. And so Hashem should bless us that we should be able to really transform this word, Ekeb, which means heal, into its other deeper meaning, which, which refers to the Ikve de Meshiche, the heel of days, the end of time, that by investing a level of sensitivity and love for the little things and, and, and just changing our attitude into something that's very sort of positive and alive and prioritizing our observance so that we're taking full advantage of who we are and really you know, making this relationship into something that's very, very exciting. We should see this transformative effect on our lives and the world around us. Yeah.